Why you love me like you love me? I'll never know. The most surprising thing about this book is the fact that it was men that started the old um they say agitating for more rights and more freedom for women. I don't think they saw it that way. They just looked at some things were very philosophical. They looked at some things like, nah, man, this is not serving our community. It was about women, but they recognized that it was not serving all of them. Like, it was not serving the community. So they decided to be like, let's change it. Let's write to our court. Let's get this fixed. And that, to me, is quite admirable. Very admirable. This book is a thematic history of the women's movement in India, both before and after independence. This book covers the the period between the 19th century to the present day. It looks at how women's issues were raised initially by men and as part of the movement for social reform, and then with the involvement of women in nationalist movements by women themselves. Sounds interesting. Uh... Better than silver. That song has been stuck in my head. It's from the Lion album by Elevation Worship. Better than gold. And particularly by Valley Boys. They've they featured Valley Boys in it. I've never heard of Valley Boys until until then. And the two songs that they they featured in on that album. I love they sound soft. I just like just 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 soft. Let's get back on track. Yet, his views on women's education were, in certain respects, not very different from those of other reformers. Female schools, he observed, first of all, so they had female schools, they had male schools. Female schools, he observed, first of all, attracted minorities as, upon mature consideration, they were found to be even more necessary than male ones. Look at this guy. See, where, where in all the issue books that I've read this week, all the 10, this is the one the indian people this is the one that that the guy is saying that the female schools are more important than the male schools like bro where'd you get the enlightenment from i'm not saying that one is more important than the other but i like i like the way his mind is working or the way his mind works because he did the roots of education trying hold on um first of all Attracted my notion as upon mature consideration. They were f- mature consideration. Is that what it is? Hmm. They were found to be even more necessary than male ones. The rules of education tying to the proper tying in the proper tone mothers give to the disposition of children between their second and third years. Nobody mentions that. Don't mind them. Let their mother be ignorant as if the child not be ignorant too. The, con- the conditions of women's lives then needed reform not only because of the hardships women were subjected to but also for the sakes of their husbands and children over the years an increasing emphasis was placed on the latter you know, so that improve women's lives so that she can better serve our children and husband over the years an increasing emphasis was placed on the latter so so that so that the rationale advanced for improving women's lives in India was that they were mothers. That was their own angle. They were mothers. Educators were your mothers. We don't want to be clueless. The importance of this was 
stress in the following ways. The conditions under which women gave birth and brought up children were such that the Indian race had degenerated. Sickly children were born who grew up to be stunted adults. The ignorance and superstitious, the superstitiousness of their mothers led all generations of Indians to lose the entrepreneurial spirit. This was what had allowed Indians to be colonized by the British. This was, they, they really hated the British. So this is what, what was going on in their minds. What is to blame for them just coming to rule us? Therefore, it was important to the Indian nation that its children be born and brought up in the right conditions. While in the early 19th century, women had been the sign of the, of the decline of the community, by the 19th century, it was children who reflected the decline of the race. Ooh. The women were the decline that affected the children. Wow, wow, wow. Um, it even took less than a century. It was right in the middle of one century. By the, by the late 19th century, it was children who reflected the decline of the race. At the same time, the rapidly growing natural sciences gave rise to new biological theories which drew attention to the development of the human body, including brain, both over the centuries and in an individual's lifespan. An adage was coined, the child is father of man. Like the egg is the father of the end or the cock. And that, that. What's this Shakespeare? I don't know. His formative years were studied. The importance of correct nutrition, education, and domestic environment were pointed out. Why the opposition between theories of genetic determination and theories of environmental influence, nature over nurture, um, that old fight, only really developed in the 20th century it was implicit here genetics for example contributed to the formation of theories of racial superiority which implied even asserted that british rule was ordained by nature not god ordained as in the crusades or jid in other words the british were genetically fitted to rule their subjects were biologically inferior races see no wonder then that India, this was what they believed though, because they were not educated, the women were not educated, so the children were not educated and they were not strong, they were not able to feed them very well. They believed that because these British people already had the knowledge and they were eating well and they were doing things well, they were genetically fitted to rule over them, and that was the only <laughs> like that was one of the reasons why they were able to just come and rule over them. So, no wonder then that Indian society social reform. Formers, turn their attention to matters of race and biological definitions of it. Nor is it surprising that their efforts were directed towards proving that inferiority was not genetic, but contingent on social practice. They are so smart. Inferiority was not genetic, but, but contingent on social practice. Ha 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 ha. Say hello to the 21st century. Hi. We value you. Hi. Hence the attack on Sati. Sati is um, this practice they had that when the woman's husband dies, they either bury her alive or, or burn her. 
<sighs> Hence the attacks on Sati, infant marriage, Puda, uh, I don't know what that is, and the growth of movements for women's education and women's remarriages. Two campaigns in the 1880s best reflects the development of these ideas in India. The campaign for factory legislature to improve the conditions of the industrial labor and the movement against child marriage. So when they when they saw some things, they said to you know deal with those things first. And we're going to talk about some of the things that they decided to reform. Uh Am I annoying you with that song? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the 19th century could well be called an age of women. For all over the world, their rights and wrongs, their nature, capacities, and potential were the subject of heated discussion. In Europe, feminist consciousness began spreading during and after the French Revolution. And by the end of the century, feminist ideas were being expressed by radicals in England, France, and Germany. By the mid-19th century, the, women, the woman question had become a central issue for Russian reformers and anarchists. While in India, the wrongs of women began to be explored by social reformers, particularly in Bengal and Maharashtra. British relatives with these two states had begun much earlier than in other parts of India. Belgal, in particular, had known the British um, through East India Company from the early 18th century. What began as a trading relationship expanded into domination and rule, and the intimacy this engendered between the British and the Indians brought their differences into sharp focus. It is generally agreed that the Indian social reform movement of the 19th century grew out of this encounter. In the colonial economy, with its new agrarian and industrial relations, accompanied by the vast and expanding administrative structure, existing dominant groups, um, traders, scribes, tax collectors, etc., began to be forged into a middle class or bourgeoisie. As an Indian, um, as an Indian society developed under Western domination, this class sought to reform itself, the bourgeoisie, indicating initiating campaigns against caste, polytheism, idolatry, animism, Buddha, child marriage, sati, and more. Seeing them as elements of a pre, pre modern or primitive identity, so they did they weren't enjoy the domination, so they say thinking about these things. Same thing, same thing I said. At the same time. The spread of British education, which was part of the policy of building a class which could be loyal to their new rulers, introduced the native elites to ideas which were creating um, ferments in Britain, especially rationalism, evolutionism, and utilitarianism.
Calcutta became an exciting intellectual center, and most of the early reform campaigns were launched here by an eagerly developing intelligentsia. Prominent among them were radical students, many thought by H. De Rosio, a young Anglo-Indian who was fired by the concepts of liberty and equality in the French Revolution. Dubbed the Young Bengal Movement, these groups concentrated mainly on defined caste bands with such um, gestures as eating meat and drinking wine and attempting to reform the lives of women. <laughs> these people were obsessed with liberty and equality, so they decided to be rebels and drink wine and eat meat, those things that were banned because of the caste system they had. And also reforming the lives of women. Well, thank you. Uh, we can't say, we can't speak much about your motivation um, or your style, but thank you again. You love me and you like what you made. <laughs> Back to that song. Um, here, I elected this part because it was something that was written to the court to argue against Sati. I told you what Sati was, that, but what Sati is killing widows burying them alive or burning them so they wrote a very long um document letter court statement and submitted it they got what they wanted because it was banned no more sati no more sati s-a-t-i if you want to look it up uh let's move move from here i think i'm not singing out that song again when i see vidya saga launched a campaign to remove the ban on widow remarriage okay so this is another issue they were facing now one was first sassy that was one then another one widow remarriage um the problem was they couldn't get married they didn't allow them to remarry in 18 in early 1850s it began as other social reformers had done with a tract in bengali showing that widow remarriage was accepted by shastras shastras and he debated the issue with hindu pundits in sanskrit the debate was taken up by the vernacular press and soon, songs were heard both praising and lambasting the campaign and its leader, describing some of the songs of praise. Sumata Banaje has pointed out that many of them adopted the widow's voice, telling of her pleasure and the prospect of escaping from widowhood into remarriage. Even the weavers of Santipur put their looms into the fray, and verses about the campaign appeared on their clothes. They were in support of this. Vidya Saga then translated this tract into English and gave copies of it 
copies of it to British officials with their advice he submitted a petition to the Governor General in 1855 asking for a law to be passed recognizing widow remarriage. In the same year, a draft bill was introduced in the Legislative Council by J.P. Grant, which was based on Vidyasaga's petition. Yet, of the arguments ad advanced by Vid Vidyasaga in his petition, only one was focused on by Grant. The petition argued that there were many Hindus who practiced um, widow remarriage, but who were, not, who were now unable to do so as the court runs as the courts run by the East Indian Company and the British government had declared this illegal. Moreover, the ban on widow remarriage tends generally to deprivation of morals. Several historians have pointed out that the British codification of Hindu law tended to impose bra Brahmanic rituals on the Hindus. Brahmanic is like the highest form, one of the highest levels of Hindu. According to Vidya Saga's petition, this had happened with the ban on widow remarriage. Like it's not for everybody. Allow the normal people to live their normal lives. The bill therefore could as well have been seen as a repeal of British law against widow remarriage. They were the ones that authorized this thing. Yet the situation was complicated in two ways. For Brahman for Brahman dominated Hindu orthodoxy. The argument that many Hindu communities allowed widows to remarry was a challenge to their school of thought. So, they wrote another another letter. Uh, they wrote many things um, for to encourage the legalization of the Hindu widows' remarriage. And again, guess who triumphed? Guess who triumphed? Um, the relations of the sexes. This is by a history of Aya Sam Samaj. This is excerpts from somebody's work. Someone else's work. It must be frankly admitted that when Aya Samaj came into being the lot of Hindu women was deplorable. Came into being, the lot of Hindu women was deplorable. In certain respects, it was even worse than that of men. A proportion of the men, though comprising only a very small percentage of the population, had received some sort of education in schools and colleges opened by the government, the Christian missionaries and other private agencies. But very little had been done to further the education of Indian women. This system of government introduced by the British necessitated the education of Indian men for administrative reasons. Among the agencies that have worked for improvement in this respect, the Aya Samaj occupied a high position in the Punjab and the United Provinces of Agra. And Ode. Um, it can be safely said that there has occurred a metamorphosis in the outlook of men towards women. English education and Western ideas have played an important part in engendering this change. But an equally great, if not even greater, part has been played by an appeal to the ancient Hindu ideals of womanhood and to the teachings of the ancient Hindu religion in the matter of the relations of the sexes. 
A study of ancient Hindu literature made it abundantly clear that the presence on unenviable lots of Indian women was due to a deterioration of their old ideal. In ancient India, both in theory and practice, women were placed on a pedestal in society equal to that of men, if not higher. As regards education and marriage, they held an equal position. The girls were equally entitled to receive education and no limitation at all were set on their ambition in this direction. Study was equally enjoined for the girls as well as the boys. The only difference was that in the case of girls, their period of education expired sooner than that of boys. The minimum age of marriage for girls was 16 as compared with 25 for boys. This was based on Hindu ideas of the physiological differences between the sexes. It is presumed that as regards the choice of a mate, both parties enjoyed equal freedom and equal opportunities. The ideal marriage was monogamous and one contracted with the mutual consent of the parties. Yet so many varieties of legal marriage was known to Hindu law as to leave no doubt as to the sensitivities of the Hindus to extreme difficulty and indeed unnaturalness of attempting to impose a single law upon both sexes. Some forms of marriage suggest that courtship was not altogether unknown in Hindu society and furthermore it was not regarded with any grave disapprobation. disapprobation. Though as a rule subject as a rule subject to control by parents and um, husbands and even sons and even sons, Hindu mothers, wives, sisters and daughters occupied a higher position than their counterparts, even in Christian Europe before the nineteenth century. In the family, the position of the mother was higher than that of the father, according to Manu, who is entitled to a thousand times greater respect and reverence than the father. She was in extreme control of the house and at the helm at the helm of helm, helm of household affairs, including finances. Hindu law recognizes the rights of the mother, of the widow, of the daughter, and of the sister to possess property in their own right with exclusive control over it, even when a member of even when a member of a joint family. A mother has an equal right with the father to guardianship of her children. On the death of the father, her right is absolute. An ideal Hindu wife is never expected to earn livelihood. She has been exempted from this burden by virtue of the superiority of her mother function. Oh, no wonder Indian, in Indian movies, the guy is always the one making the money. Ooh, and then they don't usually work. Hmm. Finally making sense. Um that's like old Indian movies, so I don't know what they're doing now. An Indian Hindu wife is never expected to earn a livelihood. She has been accepted from this burden by virtue of the superiority of her mother function. Okay. Male members have been made responsible even for the maintenance. Um, it is the overmarried girls and widows, though the latter was not debarred from acquiring property by inheritance, by gifts, or by their own skill. In no case have males any legal control over the property of females. This Hindu law is great, great for women.
for the treatment of women. I like it. I like it. I like to say I like it, but then I'm sorry, South Africans. I'm sorry. I know this line though. Wema. I know it's Wema. That's from Lion King. Do you all know? I hope you all know Lion King. Who are people I'm rolling with? The Manchester Chamber of Commerce started to press the government to apply these recommendations to India. British and Indian factory owners in India opposed them. The government of India appointed yet another factory commission in 1890 and in 1891. The Indian Factories Amendment Act. Amendment. <laughs> I sounded very acquirable there. <laughs> Amendment. <laughs> it's not my required myself speaking. What I didn't know that I had. Wow, well, I think it was just a slip of song, but it's nice too. I don't know if it's nice or not nice, but it's it's just I identify with my people by the way I say <laughs> with the way I say amendment. <laughs> it's not funny. Um Amendment Act was passed. A child was now defined as being any person below 14 years of age, and the minimum age of employment of children was raised to nine. Wow. The hours of work were correspondingly lowered to seven, but the rest interval was halved. The hours of work for women were limited to 11 a day, with one and a half hour rest interval or less for fewer hours of work. Further, the working hours of both women and children has to be between 5 a.m. and 6 p.m. in recognition of children's health requirements and women's domestic and maternal duties. I don't get 5 a.m. 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. They have to work between those periods and it's because you are considering the maternal 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. Is the kid not supposed to be in bed by 8 p.m.? And health requirements. This is a joke. Um, If the campaign for factory legislature showed first attempts to codify the years of childhood and regulate working class, the, the kid can start working at 9. Is it 9? Yeah. Nine. What are they working at nine? Okay, I guess some kids have jobs at nine, and then they work for seven hours. Do kids, nine-year-old kids, work for seven hours? Where do they see the concentration? Never know. Anyway, it's possible. You know, it's possible, and some children have to take care of their families because I appreciate you like that. For some, for some people like that. Um so nine is nine years old is not so bad, right? Oh, I still think it's bad though. I still think it's bad. Maybe during the holiday, even though I beg if the campaign for factory legislature or I've read that
we hold that early marriage weekends okay this one we've spoken about sassy we've spoken about um the remarriage of widows now we're talking about the work that work thing then now is the time for early marriage because they got married early too we hold that early marriage weakens the physical strength of a nation it stunts its full growth and development excuse me it affects the courage and energy of the individuals and brings forth a race of weak people in strength and wanting in man in hardihood hardihood with regards early marriage i hold it a most pernicious custom which makes the nation very weak it is necessary that in a country there must be a number of bachelors who would venture upon enterprise foreign travel to see what makes hindu so feeble is the custom of early marriage they have they have hardly any strength either to become soldiers or to cultivate land or to go for trade to foreign countries they are unfit as colonizers what is good for the individual's health is good for the health of the community indirectly beneficial to the state there's a good ideal of sickness and mortality and difficulty in the act of childbirth due to imperfection imperfect consolidation of the bones of the pelvis at tender age as with women in consequence of early marriages give birth to children the heads of the babies the heads of the children of young parents are also unduly pressed upon and so either the children um they are prematurely are, are premature or grow feeble or both in body and mind turn out helpless idiots malabari himself added a further biological ill of early marriage to the list quoting from a number of victory that's a man too at this point men were still the ones fighting for equality all right more rights and they were not fighting particularly to support women although women benefited a lot they were they saw it as a more nationalist from a more nationalistic angle because they were trying to make sure that the country got better but it's a very nice way to look at it. at least if they can't really relate to the struggles of women you know directly they they have a goal that they really want to achieve and because they want to achieve that goal they understand that every part of their society must improve women included and they didn't let their ego you know their own male superiority whatever gets in the way um but i think their hindu religion really led um gave them a good precedence because if um imagine if hindu did not particularly support women like that they would have been they would have seen it as something that we are just going to accept let's focus on the other things let's um let's find a way to make our people stronger but not necessarily change the lots of the lives of women because that is what our religion dictates you understand um malabar himself added a further biological ill of early marriage to the list quoting from a number of victorian medics he adduced evidence to show that early marriage and therefore early proximity between males and females led girls to menstruate early and this led to early pregnancies and weak children 
dilapidating the race. Not all social reformers agreed with these views. The British Indian Association, for example, used the same biological terms of argument, but said the, the committee denied that it has been proved that early marriage is the sole, the most important cause of the degeneracy of the entire race. Climate, food, hereditary predisposition to diseases, um, and other cases of arrested growth are patent factors in the case. They still got their way at the end of the day. So all these things that they were arguing for and against, it didn't matter. Um, uh, moving on. At this point, um, women start to take over. This is like, uh, in the nineties, in eighteen seventies, eighteen sixty. That's when women started to take over, and then um, at different points in the book, they'll give us like a short biography of a woman that did something incredible for. Let's just read one. Pandita Ramabai was born on the 23rd of April in the forest of Gugamal in western Maharashtra. Her father, Amanta Shastri, was a learned Brahmin and something of a social reformer. He married a girl of nine and decided to educate her. The village Brahmas responded by ostracizing him and he decided to leave the village and build a home in the forest. His wife, Lashmibai, hated the loneliness of the forest, but had perforce to accept it. Soon after, Ramabai was born. While she was still a mere child, Ramabai's family started wandering from forest to forest, city to city, village to village. Wherever I could, Amata Shastris would give lectures on the need for female education. In the 1877 famine, both Ananta Shastri and Lashmibai died. Huh? She lost her parents. Ramabai and her brother, to whom she was very close, decided to carry on their father's work and lived in the same manner as he had done. Ramabai's fame as a lecturer, reaching the ears of a put of Pundit of Calcutta, they decide they decide they desired to hear and see for themselves. She obeyed their summons to appear before them, so astounded and pleased were they by the clearness of her views and eloquence in presenting them that they publicly conferred on her the highest title, Saraswati, Goddess of Wisdom. About the death of her brother, after the death of her brother, Ramabai married a Bengali lawyer and they had a daughter whom they named Manu. So this woman was, you know spoke a lot about female um education so the random women like that that comes up that came up in the book the marry a widow doctrine different women and they did different things one very notable woman um she was british though i don't remember what her name was um Let's read this part. 
The booklet, which compared men and women, pointed out that pointed out that faults commonly commonly ascribed to women, such as superstitiousness, suspicion, treachery, and insolence, could be found even more commonly in men. However, though Tarabai Shinde's defense of women was impassionate, she concluded with an exhortation to women that they should by the strength of their firm will remain always well behaved pure as fire pure as fire i know that fire purifies but for you to say that fire pure as fire i like it fire is pure an unblemished um to always remain well behaved pure as fire and unblemished internally and externally and shame men into hanging down their heads men women will begin to talk here but what's nice she was also encouraging them to stay well behaved although she was also saying that men were just as superstitious and suspicious and treacherous and insolent as women that's my girl that's my girl that's my girl what you waiting for the first steps to regulate prostitution were taken by the british in india from the turn of the 18th century ostensibly to the to deal with venereal diseases which british soldiers were able to have caught from the prostitutes they frequented in fact, prostitution had rapidly increased in India as the number of British troops stationed outside the country increased. A system of large bazaars, red light areas, attached to regimental shopping areas developed, and as these markets grew, so did attempts to manage them. It was suggested that police checks on prostitution be instituted, that prostitutes be subjected to compulsory medical exams. And registration that centers for treatment of venereal diseases be established at which prostitutes could be forcibly detained lock hospitals which originally gained their name from decision to put lepers and lunatics behind bars were now established in various cantonment areas for the treatment of venereal diseases but they had a checkered career Throughout the century, a debate raged over both the ethnic and efficacy of of those handling prostitution and venereal diseases. For over a hundred years, therefore, lock hospitals were opened, closed, reopened, and reclosed, largely according to whether their op- their opponents or proponents had greater influence at the time. Hmm. There are pictures in this book that I mentioned, and the women who are perce- who are um prostitutes, it's weird, but they're dressed like covered from top to bottom. They're wearing jewelry, and their hair is also covered. Hmm. This appears to have been the point at which women began to replace men in playing female roles, female roles in commercial theatres. 
several prostitutes turned actresses and one of them Binodini shot into stardom Data's move might have been prompted by an Amrita Bazaar Patrika report appearing in 1869 which created something of a furore in Bengali reformist circles According to reports, 99% of Calcutta's prostitutes were widows, of whom a large number came from Kulin Berman's family. Yet, um, those were the people that um, practiced polygamy. Yes, if the reports created a furore, the great general reaction was to attempt to bury it rather than act upon it. What intrigued me there was that they became actresses those um formerly those former prostitutes became actresses and like freedom to do what you want they even wanted it was a legal thing they made hospitals for them to get treated for general venereal diseases the internalization of victorian Morality grew so deeply that almost any kind of public display of emotion began to be frowned upon, especially if it was physical. Holy celebrations could, of course, be fairly easily characterized as bacchanalian or orgiastic, and it is not surprising that at the seventh National Social Conference, reformers decided to launch a campaign to purify the holy. Um, festival. Holy is H-O-L-I-E. It's a type of festival. So the people would neither drink, nor take drugs, nor dance during it. Um, Think God bad though. <laughs> people are not allowed to kiss each other again. That's an exaggeration, but you cannot be affo- affectionate in public. Yeah. By the end of the 19th century, therefore, the issues of rape and racism were interlinked. Though this interlinkage was first high was first highlighted by social reformers, it was soon used by nationalists as a weapon against British rule. Those were the, they wanted the British out. The nationalists. Cries for the protection of our women from sexual attacks um, by white soldiers abounded, especially in Bengal. One of the most militantly nationalist women of the period, Sarala Debbie Gosal, who took over the Harati in 1895, used his pages to harangue young men to engage in physical culture and to start an intimate circle for self-defense and the defense of their women from molestation by British soldiers in streets and stations. The same appeal was made by a lady correspondent in the Sajibani. Yet, if nationalists were beginning to use rape as an example of imperialistic um, barbarism, it was white people at this point that were raping the women and it was increasing in the 19th century. If nationalists were beginning to use rape as an example of imperialistic barbarism, it was clearly seen as a violation of community or national honor rather than an act of violence against women rape itself was a taboo was a taboo excuse me rape itself was a taboo subject 
nameable only when committed by outsiders, that this was at least partly a deliberate stand taken by nationalists was shown by the attitude towards the death of Humoni Debi, an 11-year-old child bride who died in 1893 when an adult husband raped her. Though the incident caused considerable public out- outcry, this came mainly from the reformist ranks. The nationalists kept mum. So the nationalists were fighting more for um, the British getting out of their country and they typically used whatever ammunition came up. And while the reformists were trying to better the country, um, from inside, get the people in the country stronger and change some of the things that did not serve the people and make the country stronger. So they were the ones that were um, pissed. The reformers were the ones that were pissed when that child died because her husband raped her. Her adult husband raped her because, you know, it's Indian. But those other ones, those um, reformists, were pissed when someone white rapes Indian women. You understand? You know, everybody picks their struggle and fight their battles. But the woman I was speaking about that time that I said she was British but she was um a nationalist and reformer. She was a national reformer. <laughs> um was Annie Bisat Bisant. I don't know if finally I don't know if any of you have heard of her. She's apparently quite legendary. But that's all we're going to say. Um she was also elected president of the Congress. Um and she was the first woman president. Hmm now we're going to talk about education oh we're not going to talk about education my alarm is going to ring in two minutes and we're going to talk here you have contributions that's that was the education part in the last part actually so we we did okay we did okay. Mm, that's what we're going to stop. The education power was just re-emphasizing the fact that women have to be educated so that they'll be able to educate their children. So, I've told you what that is. And that's what we're going to stop. Enjoy your day or night. Love you. Good night. Bye. I mean... <laughs>